Chapter 18 of Mosby's Memoirs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Mosby's Memoirs by Colonel John Singleton Mosby. Chapter 18 In Retrospect. In December 1899, Colonel Mosby wrote the following letter to John S. Russell, his chief scout in the war, which throws valuable sidelights on many of the episodes connected with his command, and sums up his deliberate opinion of many of the controversial points connected with his partisan life. In this survey of the past, Colonel Mosby stated many of his final conclusions. San Francisco, December 16, 1899 Mr. John S. Russell, Berryville, Virginia. Dear John, I have mailed you a set of photographs of the Berryville raid that made Sheridan retreat fifty miles down the valley to the place where he started from. In 1867 Captain McAleer of Baltimore visited the scene, made sketches, and procured photographs of many of our men. He then went to Paris and had the pictures painted by two distinguished artists. Footnote. Bosset and Philippoteau. Photographic reproductions of these paintings were widely circulated in France, England, and America shortly after the war. And a footnote. Number one, entitled Mosby Planning an Attack on the Federal Cavalry, represents the battalion just as we reached the east bank of the Shenandoah, the Daughter of the Stars. You are near me listening intently to an order I am giving you to cross the river and find out what was in front. You returned after dark, when I was asleep enjoying a soldier's dream, and the sentinel stars had set their watch in the sky, and told me that a long train, heavily guarded, was passing on the pike. In a few minutes all were mounted and moving to the attack. Number two represents the Berryville fight and the stampede of the train guard. I am with Sam Chapman's company that was kept in reserve with the howitzer that is firing, while Richard's squadron charge at one point on the line, and William Chapman and Glasscock, with their companies, charge at another. Stockton Terry of Lynchburg is near me with the battalion colors. A body of the enemy formed behind a stone fence and made some resistance. Here Louis Adi, of Glasscock's company, was killed. I remember very well when Guy Broadwater rode up and reported it to me in the midst of the fight. All I said was, I can't help it. He was a fine boy. Do you remember how the Yellow Jackets routed us and were near spoiling all my plans of that day? The howitzer came up at a gallop and was unlimbered on a knoll that commanded the pike. The gun was put in a position right over a nest of Yellow Jackets. They were home rulers, like the Boers, and instantly a swarm flew out to repel the invasion of their territory. My men had stood a volley from a body of infantry on the pike, but the sting of the yellow jackets was too much for their courage. The horses reared and plunged. The men ran away from the gun. Whether the scene was sublime or ridiculous depends upon one's point of view at the time. My horse was frantic, and I felt a good deal like Hercules did when he put on the shirt of the centaur and couldn't pull it off. We were on the verge of a panic. A few minutes' delay would give the enemy time to recover from their surprise. A shot from the howitzer was to be the signal for the squadrons to charge. They were waiting. But just then one of the men, Babcock I think it was, 
rushed forward, recaptured the howitzer, and dragged it off. The Yellow Jackets returned in triumph to their hole in the ground. In a minute a shell burst among the wagons. It knocked off the head of a mule, the guard stampeded, while the braying of the mules could be heard above the roar of the gun. The mules we captured supplied General Lee's army with transportation, and the drove of fine beeves was sent as a present and furnished beefsteaks for his soldiers. You will observe in the picture representing our return a figure on horseback playing a fiddle. It is Bob Ridley, Eastham. He got it from a headquarters wagon. Bob is playing a tune to which he had danced. Malbrook has gone to the wars. Our object was to impede Sheridan's march. I was sorry I could not be with you at the unveiling of the monument to our men at Front Royal, and I dissent from some historical statements in Major Richards's address. I do not agree with him that our men were hung in compliance with General Grant's orders to Sheridan. They were not hung in obedience to the orders of a superior, but from revenge. A man who acts from revenge simply obeys his own impulses. Major Richards says the orders were a dead letter, after I retaliated, which implies that they had not been before. I see no evidence to support such a conclusion. In his letter in the Times, Major Richards says that Sheridan's dispatches about hanging our men were visionary, i.e., he never hung any. If so, the order had always been a dead letter. No one ever heard of his hangings until his dispatches were published a few years ago. Sheridan was then dead, but his posthumous memoirs say nothing about hanging, although two pages are devoted to an account of the killing of Meigs and Custer's burning dwelling-houses in Rockingham County in revenge. Meigs was not killed by my men. We never went that far up the valley. Sheridan's dispatches in the war records about the men he hung were not even a revelation to me. They revealed nothing. They were simply spectres of imagination, like the dagger in the air that Macbeth saw. If Sheridan had communicated Grant's dispatch of August 16th to any one to be executed, it would have been to Blazer, who commanded a picket corps that was specially detailed to look after us. In his report Blazer speaks of capturing some of my men. He never mentions hanging any. Those he captured were certainly not hung, for I saw them when they came home after the close of the war. The following dispatches record the rise and fall of Blazer. Sheridan to Augur. August 20, 1864. I have one hundred men who will take the contract to clean out Mosby's gang. I want one hundred Spencer rifles for them. Send them to me if they can be found in Washington. Signed, P. H. Sheridan, Major General Commanding. Endorsement. Approved by order of the Secretary of War. Signed, C. A. Dana, Assistant Secretary. Stevenson to Sheridan. Harper's Ferry, November 19, 1864. Two of Captain Blazer's men came in this morning, Privates Harris and Johnson. They report that Mosby with three hundred men attacked Blazer near Cabletown yesterday about eleven o'clock. They say the entire command, with the exception of themselves, was captured or killed. I have ordered Major Congdon with three hundred twelfth Pennsylvania Cavalry to Cabletown to bury dead and take care of wounded, if any and report all facts he can learn. I shall immediately furnish report as soon as received. Exit Blazer Richards commanded in the Blazer fight. I was not there. 
as an affair of arms it passed anything that had been done in the Shenandoah campaign, and recalled the days when knighthood was in flower. When we sent Blazer and his band of prisoners to Richmond, they would not have admitted that they had ever hung anybody. Major Richards refers to Grant's orders to destroy subsistence for an army so as to make the country untenable by the Confederates, and pathetically describes the conflagration. He ought to know that there had been burning of mills and wheat stacks in Loudoun two years before Grant came to Virginia. Grant's orders were no more directed against my command than Early's. Augusta and Rockingham were desolated, where we never had been, but I can't see the slightest connection between burning forage and provisions and hanging prisoners. One is permitted by the code of war, the other is not. After General Lee's surrender, I received a communication from General Hancock asking for mine. I declined to do so until I could hear whether Joe Johnston would surrender or continue the war. We agreed on a five days armistice. When it expired, nothing had been heard from Johnston. I met a flag of truce at Millwood, and had proposed an extension of ten days, but received through Major Russell a message from Hancock refusing it, and informing me that unless I surrendered immediately, he would proceed to devastate the country. The reply I sent by Russell was, Tell General Hancock he is able to do it. Hancock then had forty thousand men at Winchester. The next day I disbanded my battalion to save the country from being made a desert. If anyone doubts this, let him read Hancock's report. If it was legitimate for Hancock to lay waste the country after I had suspended hostilities, surely it was equally so for Grant to do it when I was doing all the damage in my power to his army. Stanton warned Hancock not to meet me in person under a flag of truce, for fear that I would treacherously kill him. Hancock replied that he would send an officer to meet me. He sent General Chapman. The attention Grant paid to us shows that we did him a great deal of harm. Keeping my men in prison weakened us as much as to hang them. Major Richards complains of the debasing epithets Sheridan applied to us. I have read his reports, correspondence, and memoirs, but have never seen the epithets. In common with all northern and many southern people, he called us guerrillas. The word guerrilla is a diminutive of the Spanish word guerra, war, and simply means one engaged in the minor operations of war. Although I have never adopted it, I have never resented as an insult the term guerrilla when applied to me. Sheridan says that my battalion was the most redoubtable partisan body that he met. I certainly take no exception to that. He makes no charge of any act of inhumanity against us. The highest compliment ever paid to the efficiency of our command is the statement in Sheridan's memoirs that while his army largely outnumbered Early's, yet their line of battle strength was about equal on account of the detachments he was compelled to make to guard the border and his line of communication from partisan attacks. Ours was the only force behind him. At that time the records show that in round numbers Early had 17,000 present for duty, and Sheridan had 94,000. I had only five companies of cavalry when Sheridan came in August 1864 to the Shenandoah Valley. A sixth was organized in September. Two more companies joined me in April 1865, after the evacuation of Richmond. They came just in time to surrender. 
I don't care a straw whether Custer was solely responsible for the hanging of our men, or jointly with others. If we believe the reports of the generals, none of them ever heard of the hanging of our men. They must have committed suicide. Contemporary evidence is against Custer. I wonder if he also denied burning dwelling-houses around Berryville. I once called at the White House in 1876 to see General Grant, sent him my card, and was promptly admitted. When I came out of his room, one of the secretaries told me that General Custer had called the day before, but that General Grant had refused to see him. The incident is related in the Life of Custer. A few weeks afterward Custer was killed in the Sitting Bull Massacre. Major Richards further says that there was scarcely a family in all that section that did not have some member in Mosby's command. If that is true, I must have commanded a larger army than Sheridan. I didn't know it. He describes the pathos of the scenes that might have been if the severe and cruel order had been executed to transfer the families from that region to Fort McHenry, and says it would have paralyzed my command. If so, that would have been a more humane way of getting rid of it than killing the men. Now I have never considered women and children necessary appendages to an army. On the contrary, I would rather class them with what Caesar, in his commentaries, call impedimenta. Homer's heroes were not paralyzed when Helen was carried off to Troy. It only aroused their martial ambition. Sheridan knew that if he did anything of the kind it would stimulate the activity of my men, so he didn't try it. As for our lieutenant-colonel, who, as Major Richard says, married in that section, I think that if Sheridan had captured his wife and mother-in-law and sent them to prison, instead of going into mourning he would have felt all the wrath and imitated the example of the fierce Achilles when he heard that Patroclus, his friend, had been killed and his armor had been captured. Now perish Troy, he said, and rushed to fight. Very truly yours, John S. Mosby. End of chapter.